Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 9 this morning, please. Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to read from verse 24 to the end of the chapter. Chapter 9, 24 to 28. It says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. If you could read the Greek, it would say, before the face of God for us. Verse 25, Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once, in the end of the world, has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Three times in this passage of scripture you see the word appear. The three appearings of Christ. Did you notice near the end of verse 26, it says, He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It would say in verse 24, at the end, he's in heaven itself now to appear in the presence or before the face of God for us. And at the end of verse 28, for those that look to him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. I want to chat with you this morning about the three appearings of Christ that are all mentioned in these scriptures. He has appeared the first time he came into this world. He appeared the first time to deal with the issue of our sin. Thank God that's history. Amen? He has appeared the first time to deal with the issue of our sin. Now, in the very presence of God, before the face of God, He is appearing in heaven on behalf of you and me. Thank God for that. And in the future, at what we often call the second coming, He will appear again. And He will culminate our salvation, and he will culminate the history of this world when he appears the second time. The three appearings of Christ. It's what's going to get us through everything. The first appearing dealt with the issue of our sin. He appears in the heavens for us to supply us with everything we need for our lives. He will come again the second time, or the third appearing in this context, where he's going to bring the world to its conclusion and history to its conclusion and our salvation will be brought to its conclusion. The three appearings of Christ. On Good Friday, we spent the evening here, uh, or the weekend, 
with Pastor Jim Dick with us. And on the Sunday night, I shared about the Day of Atonement and what happened on the Day of Atonement. Hebrews chapter 9 has been comparing the work that Jesus did with Leviticus chapter 16, which is known as the Day of Atonement. On that special day of atonement, the high priest, and only the high priest, was able to do this. And he had to consecrate himself in a special way for that special day. He couldn't go in there with his normal high priestly garments, and they looked beautiful, and they were wonderfully made, but he wasn't allowed to go in in the splendor of his normal high priestly garments. He had to lay all that aside and simply put on white linen garments and all you saw was white and he had to consecrate himself for that special day. Um, Then after all that preparation he needed to make a blood sacrifice upon the brazen altar. He needed to go through the holy place. He needed to enter into the holy of holies which he could only do once a year and nobody was allowed in that holy place to witness or to see what he did. And he was to go into that holy place and he was to sprinkle this blood on the mercy seat. And when that work of sprinkling the blood was completed, he needed to exit and he needed to appear again to the people who were outside waiting because they were wondering if his work would be complete. Did he succeed? Was he accepted? Because it was a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God if you're not covered properly. Would he exit properly and appear to the people and know that the work had been completed? So what we just read in Hebrews 9 is based upon everything else in Hebrews 9. And and it's drawing pictures from the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. Now the first thought I want to share with you uh, in this passage of Scripture is the idea in verse 24... It's in verse 23, in verse 24, that the tabernacle that Moses built, that tent, the tabernacle of the wilderness, was only a pattern. And that's going to be a simple enough statement, but it's an important thing that we are to grasp. Because the believers in the New Testament that had these Jewish background had made the mistake that this tabernacle, this physical temple, this tabernacle, was the real deal, was the real thing. And it's not. It is just a picture. It is a pattern. Christ has entered not just something made with hands, but he's entered into the very heaven itself, the very presence, the very face of God itself. Look at chapter 9 and verse number 11, for instance. It says that Christ being come a high priest of good things to come. Now hear this. By a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building. Where Christ is gone and where Christ is appearing is not something that any man has made. God himself has made it into a far greater and a more perfect place. In verse number 23, it says, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifices than these. In other words, what you saw on the earth, that tabernacle in the wilderness or the temple that was built by Solomon after that, they were just patterns. They're not the real thing. 
They are just patterns. We read it in verse number 24 already, that the things on the earth were made with hands, and they're just figures of the true. In chapter 10 and verse number 1, this thought is emphasized again. Chapter 10, verse 1, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of those things. The writer of Hebrews wants to state over and over and over again, so we get the point that what we see on this earth is not the real thing. That's such an important principle because people trust their traditions. People trust the things they can put their hands on. But we are dealing with eternal spiritual realities. That is just a pattern, object lesson, a shadow, a figuring for us to be able to learn something by it. But those object lessons are not the real thing. And the writer of Hebrews wants to emphasize that over and over and over to us. Because what Christ has done for us is far greater than anything that anybody can act out on this earth. Christ has not entered a replica on earth. He did not enter the tabernacle of Moses. He did not enter into the temple of a Solomon. But the truth is that he has entered into the reality of heaven itself. Let's let that sink into where he's gone. He's entered into the reality of heaven itself. The tabernacle that Moses built is described in fairly good detail in chapter 9, verses 1 and 10. But Jesus didn't go there. He didn't enter a mere representation. Because that representation is fragmentary, it's divided, it doesn't tell you the whole truth. It's only a pattern. It's not the true reality. What I like is a verse in chapter 8 and verse number 1 and 2, where it says, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. Here's the total. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? He's on the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. He is there as a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle. And I like this is the phrase I like, which the Lord pitched, which the Lord built, and not man. The writer of Hebrews wants to emphasize this point over and over and over again that Christ has entered the real deal. And anything on this world is just a picture, a shadow, a prefiguring, which is quite imperfect in even how it represents the true. And Christ has entered into the real deal. Now, I like that where it says, which the Lord pitched and not man. Because I don't know if I ever told you, but the end of the story is glory. And at the end of our story, we are looking for a city. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. We're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Amen? The end of our story is we inherit something not that man has built. That should excite us. Nothing that man has built is our inheritance. The end of our story is receiving something that God himself has built. 
Amen. Now that's powerful stuff. What God Himself has built and where Christ has entered in on our behalf is not something that man has built. He has entered into that which God Himself has built so He can bring us to the end of our story so that we also receive that which not man has built, but what God Himself has built. That's powerful. That's powerful. That's where Christ has appeared. So I'm going to ask the question, forgive me for the redundancy, but where has Jesus entered? Where has he entered? Chapter 9, verse 24, he has entered into heaven itself. He hasn't entered into the replica of heaven. He hasn't entered into a foreshadowing of heaven. He has entered into the true reality of heaven itself. In other words, he has gone to the unmistakable description of the place where God himself dwells. It is that divine presence that God dwells there that makes the sanctuary that Christ has entered the true sanctuary. That's where he's gone. Think about that and let that sink in to us. Now the second question, redundant, but let's ask it so it touches our hearts. Why has he entered there? Chapter 9 and verse 24, the last phrase tells you why he has gone there. He has gone there now to appear in the presence of God. Listen to these next words. For us. Why is he there, folks? Why is he there? He's gone for us. In other words, let me put it to you this way. He has not gone there just to assume the same existence he had before he came into this world. It is not that he just was in heaven, came to earth, and now he's back in heaven like he was for all eternity. That is not the reason he has gone back. He has gone there for us. Not just to assume life as it used to be, whatever that is like. He did not just assume life as it used to be with the Father before creation. The reason he has gone back is for us. Now that is such an important principle here. It's because the truth is this, that we were made in his image and we are made and called to be joint heirs together with him. And his future does not exist without you and me. Think about that. That's a powerful, overwhelming thought. But his future has no existence apart from you and me. He has not gone back just to assume life like it was before he came. He came to get you and me because his future is with you and me. Have we got that? Is that sunk in? Can you believe it? Do you really believe that? Do you appreciate that truth? Do you understand that truth? His future does not exist without you and me, and he wants you and me there in all the fullness that He has prepared for us. And so He came 
He is the, the eternal Son of God. I mean, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 4, it starts out this, that God has in time past spoken by the prophets in the divers, diversity of ways, but hath in these last days, at the point of history, culminating all things to its conclusion, that God speaks His will by sending His Son. And the first thing that it says about His Son is that He is the heir of all things. Amen. Jesus is the heir of all things. But verse 14 of chapter 1 says that you and I are joint heirs with Christ and His future kingdom and His future glory and His future existence is not without you and me. I thought you'd be excited about that. It's not without you and it's not without me. And so because man fell into sin, Christ, the eternal Son of God, who is the heir of all things, by whom also He created all the worlds, all the ages, who is the express image of His person, who is the brightness of His glory, who who sustains everything by the word of His power, this eternal Son of God, His future is wrapped up in you and me. If you don't have a reason for living, I do. His future, this eternal Son of God, who is the heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person, this one who sustains all things by the word of His power, His future doesn't exist without you and me. We fell into sin. So this eternal Son of God becomes incarnate. Takes on flesh and blood made like unto His brothers, Hebrews chapter 2. Why? Because His future doesn't exist without us. And therefore, He becomes one of us in this lower state. He takes on flesh and blood. He makes Himself lower than the angels to become like you and me, to suffer life like you and me, to suffer trials, to suffer difficulties, to suffer disappointments, to go through all the temptation so that He would know exactly what it takes to get you and me to be what He needs us to be because His future is related to you and me. Anybody filled with wonder at this? So he became incarnate. Just to learn all about you and all about me. Why? So now that he appears, he shed his own blood, dealt once and for all with the question of our sin. Now he appears in the very presence of God for us so that He can minister and mediate to you and me absolutely everything we need to get us 
to the end of the story so that we can participate with him in glory when he appears the second time without sin unto salvation. He's there in the presence of heaven itself before the very face of God itself to supply to you and me all that we need to get us to the end of the story. That's why he's in heaven. Not just to resume life as it used to be, but to plead for you and me. Because his future is dependent upon our arrival. That's enough, isn't it? I got a whole lot more. (laughs) But what a thought that is. What a, a powerful thought that is. He now appears. When does he appear? Right now. Now he appears. It says, in the presence of God for us. If you could read this in the Greek, it's actually before the face of God for us. Now I want you to stop and think what that phrase means. That he is appearing right now before the face of God on your behalf. What that means. Well, in the Old Testament, there was always a longing to be able to appear before God. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 42, verse number 2, where he says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? There's this longing in the human heart, this longing in the human soul to be able to appear before God. Psalm 17, verse number 15, says this. 17:15. As for me, I will behold your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with your likeness. To appear before the face of God means that you have received divine acceptance and you have received favor. Now that's important because that means that Christ has received ultimate favor. He has received the ultimate acceptance, but not for himself. He didn't have to gain that acceptance. He had it. He didn't have to gain it. But he does it as a man who has overcome this world. And he gains that acceptance and he gains that favor, not for himself, but for you and me. Marvelous. In other words, you are now accepted And all that is needed for pressing on in our lives is fully available to us from the very throne room of heaven itself where God dwells. That's where our resources are. That's where he appears. And that's where he draws those resources. And it's from those resources that he, by the Spirit of God, mediates that to you and to me. Amazing. Appearing before the very face of God. Do you remember what God said to Moses? When Moses says, show me your glory. Remember that? Hit him in the cleft of the rock. What did God say? He said, you can't see my face. 
Remember that? Moses could not see the face of God. Exodus 33.20 says, Nobody can see the face of God and live. But hallelujah, that's been overcome and somebody is there before the face of God. There is an exalted man. His name is Jesus. And he is before the very face of God himself. But not for himself, but for you and me. Moses never had that privilege. Isn't that amazing? Hallelujah. Amen. On the Day of Atonement, in, in Leviticus chapter 16, for those of us that went through that with me, when that high priest went into that Holy of Holies, he couldn't go there unless that room was first filled with smoke. And he would only see things dimly through the smoke. Well, Jesus is, he sees clearly the face of God. So he appears now, right there, to perpetually represent you and me to God, mediating to us who are still waiting for that second coming, for that final appearing, who are still on our pilgrimage to final glory while we live in this sinful world with all its difficulties and trials. He is there perpetually to mediate to us the benefits of His atoning work so that you have everything you need to get to the end of the story because His future is dependent upon you and me. Marvelous. What a powerful truth this is. Powerful truth. In the Old Testament, the high priest had to repeat this sacrifice every year. The Day of Atonement. Uh, once a year it had to happen. But thank God, not Jesus. Only once. His sacrifice was so perfect, there is no need for repetition. He didn't take the blood of another, the blood of a bull or a goat. He took his own, very own blood. If repeated sacrifices were necessary, how absurd would it be for Jesus to die frequently? How many times would this have been required from the foundation of the world? But we know for a fact that he hasn't had to do this repeatedly, but it says he has appeared once for all. Now listen to this. It says in, in, in this verse here, in verse 26, he appeared once in the end of the world. And I want to unpack what that means. That he has appeared one time. There's no need for repetition. One time at the end of the world. He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice for himself. The abolition of sin. Verse 26, let's take a look at it, and I want to unpack that for you. It reads, For then must he have often suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once, when? Now, how often? Once, and when in history? At the end of the world. He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. When he says, but now, he is making a contrast with how the Old Testament saint had to approach God. In other words, that Day of Atonement had to be repeated every year, and the reason had to be repeated every year, because it actually never did anything. 
It couldn't cleanse your heart. It couldn't cleanse your conscience. It couldn't set you free. It could only cover it and then have to be repeated the year after. It never actually did anything to change your heart, to change your mind, to cleanse your conscience. It couldn't touch the inward man at all. That's why it had to be done all the time. But now, once for all, the blood of Christ actually brings forgiveness to you. Actually sets your conscience free. Actually changes your heart. Actually causes old habits to die and new desires to be birthed within you. Amen. This is a powerful sacrifice. So, quite a difference now how we approach God than from the Old Testament. Now, it says in that verse that He did not come often from the foundation of the world. But it says he came, it says here, at the end of the world. Let me put that to you, a little better translation in modern English. He came at the climax of the ages. When was Jesus incarnate? At the climax of the ages. This is the moment in history when God made his incision into the world. This is the climatic event of history. This is the moment when God, so as it were, made his mark. When God put his stake into the ground and he claimed it for himself. The fact is this, this world was created for a purpose. And we got that in chapter 1. Who being the heirs of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. All of this was created as the Father's gift to His Son. But the greatest gift that God gives to His Son is not the heavens, and is not the earth, is not the sun, is not the moon, is not the stars, is not the trees, it's not anything like that. The greatest gift that God has given His Son is you. You are the greatest gift that the Father could ever give to His Son. There's something more important than the heavens and the earth, and that is the people of God. And the people of God are the body of Christ, and we are God's gift to His Son. And He's not going to move into His inheritance without us. Powerful stuff. He's not taking his inheritance without us. And so right now, he's perfecting us, developing us, training us, teaching us to move into our inheritance as his companions, as his body, at his appearing. This world was created for a purpose. And at that decision, that that cross, that crucifixion, and his burial, and his ascension, and his exaltation means this, that God is now moving all creation to its purpose. The process has begun. And it includes you and me. And so he appears in the very presence of God for this reason. He has achieved this by the abolition of sin. Sin has separated us from God. Sin has filled life with destruction. Sin has caused us to be afraid of death. Sin has 
causes us to fear judgment to come. Only God knows how many people throughout history have longed to be in a position where you and I sit today with the reality that sin has been abolished. We're privileged people to live now. How many people wish they lived in the time when sin had been abolished and we now have open access to the very presence of God himself? Do we take this for granted? When God visits us in our, in our worship and we sense his divine presence and we sense that gift of faith rising up and we sense the love of God, do we understand that we are a privileged people, that that didn't exist before? That did not exist before? How dare we sit back? How dare we not enter in? How dare we hide behind our shyness? I'm just not that kind of a person. When God has done so much to open it up for us and now invites us in because His future, He wants to share that future with you and with me. Sin has been abolished. You have access to the very presence of God. Listen to the psalmist. My soul longs for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh, they cry out for the living God. Psalm 84, verse 2. Sin has been abolished. That means it no longer dominates our lives. It means it hasn't got the ability to determine the rest of our life. We used to be its victim, but he's abolished its power. It hasn't got the power to determine the rest of my life. Sin no longer excludes you or me from the presence of God. This surpasses the grandest hopes of anybody that ever lived in the Old Testament. We heard about Abraham this morning. Abraham wishes he was sitting here in church with us today. Is that an exaggeration? It is not. You and I are in a far better place than Abraham, than Isaac, than Jacob, than King David, than Solomon, than Elijah, than Elisha, than Jeremiah, than Isaiah. You and I are in a far, far, far better place. They look forward to the day. I look back to the day. Sin has been abolished. Jesus right now is in the presence of God, in the face of God for me. I have access into the presence of God, something they never enjoyed. What an honor. And what a privilege. How dare we sit back. What an honor. What a privilege. In the Old Testament, according to chapter 9, verse 8, the way to God had not been revealed. It couldn't do anything. But through Christ, it's all done. Hallelujah. Now what's interesting here, the one who came into this world became incarnate. The one who died and the one who ascended and is exalted on the right hand of majesty. Let me put it to you this way. He has not disappeared. He's still appearing. He has not disappeared. But according to chapter 2 of Hebrews verses 8 and 9, Jesus is quite visible to you and me through the eyes of faith. He hasn't disappeared. Faith 
sees him in his exalted state. That's why chapter 12 and verse 3 says, or chapter 12 verse 2, looking away to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Why do people fear death? Verse 27, appointed unto men once to die. People fear death because it's the fruit of sin and afterwards there's judgment. But thank God we're free from that. Thank God we're free from that. There is no fear in death. Sorrow, yes, but fear, no. Sin has been abolished. Now what's interesting, in verse number 28, it says, To them that look for him, he will appear the second time without sin unto salvation. That's referring back to the practice on the Day of Atonement. That high priest would have to go in in his white garments... Nobody was allowed to go in and see this. There were no eyewitnesses to this. Is he going to live? Is he going to die in there? Is his sacrifice acceptable or is it not acceptable? So when he went in and they watched him carry this basin of sacrificial blood and they're all on the outside waiting very anxiously while he fulfilled his duties that nobody could see him do in the Holy of Holies in that cloud of smoke. Everybody outside is waiting in tenseness. What if he failed? What if he did something wrong? What if he died in there? Would their sins be covered? Or are they going to be exposed to judgment? They're waiting outside with, with tenseness and anxiety. Is, is the end of the story, is it mercy or is it judgment? And when he appears the second time, when he comes out alive, then all the tension is gone. There's relief. His coming out, his return provided assurance that the offering he made had been accepted by God. His coming out was greeted with a sense of excitement and jubilation. There was joy, there was relief, there was excitement on seeing him return from the sanctuary and the joy they had was inexpressible. That means their sins were covered. That means that God can dwell in the midst of his people without any sense of judgment. You and I are looking for him to come. When he comes the second time, when he has that appearing, it has nothing to do anymore with the question of our sin because that has been taken care of while he's there. When he comes back, it means the question of whole thing of sin is finished, it is over. The only reason he comes back is to bring you the fullness of the blessing of being in God's presence. That's why he comes back. He comes back to mediate to you the full provision and the full blessing of everything that God has designed for you. You and I have no idea what that means. Because the eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, neither has it entered the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love Him. All I do know 
is this. He is the heir of all things. And I am a joint heir with him in all things. All I know is chapter 2 verse 10 it says he's bringing many sons unto glory. All I know is that the Bible says that there remains a rest therefore to the people of God. So let us labor to enter into that rest. Bit of a contradiction, isn't it? Let us labor to enter into that rest. I've got to preach that sometime about the rest of God in Hebrews chapter 4. Because God worked for six days and on the seventh day he rested. What does that mean? It means the presence of God. Is so full and so complete that he spent six days creating the world and the seventh day he spent preparing the rest for you and I to enter into. That's what it means. It means there is a holy of holies, the rest of God. It means the heavens and the earth were the outer court and the holy place. But there is a holy of holies called the rest of God. And that is your destination. That's the end of your story. That's ahead of us. He's going to come back to bring us to that fullness. I know this much that I'm looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. We want to inherit a better, that heavenly country. You and I are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. What powerful stuff this is. So the book of Hebrews is intended to motivate us to keep going. Because we get weary. We get discouraged. Life is full of trials. Life is full of tests. And sometimes we just get tired. Those who receive this sermon called Hebrews, they're facing trials that you and I don't understand. The situation these readers were facing with was they were about to go through persecution that would include their martyrdom. They were going to die for their faith. He is encouraging them to persevere to the point of death. So I could understand why some of them were forsaking the assembling of themselves together because it was just getting too dangerous to be caught in a church meeting. So I could understand why some of them held back and not going to church. So I wonder what keeps us from church. These people had a reason. They were scared for their lives. We're not. But this writer, is he, this writer Hebrews is saying, even if such a cost is in front of you like that, you have a high priest who's overcome death. Death is not the end of the story. There is a God who raises the dead. There is a future for you that is more real than this present world. Here, we're just pilgrims. We are moving into the reality. This world is not the real thing. The return, the appearing of Christ is the real thing. It's the, it's the appearing of Christ is the moment that all history is looking towards because that's when the Son of God takes His inheritance, but He doesn't take it without you and without me. His future is wrapped up in us. 
Wow. What kind of a gospel is this anyway? What kind of a story is this anyway? Jesus has overcome. His sacrifice has been accepted. His blood has done the work. He now sits on the right hand of the majesty. Not in a replica made with hands, but in the true deal itself. In heaven itself. The very, before the very face of God. He has gone to a place that no man has built to bring you and I to a place that no man has built. So, while we're waiting, we're not waiting, we're on a pilgrimage. We are arriving at that final day of Christ's appearing. But as we're on this pilgrimage, He's interceding for us, making available to you and to me all the grace and all the mercy we need in the time of tribulation. Our response to this is to come boldly, with full assurance, with full confidence, not by our own worth, but because His blood has abolished sin. We don't go there on our own merits. We don't need them. His blood has abolished sins. You are welcome in the very presence of God to receive everything you need for your life because He's interested in you because His future is wrapped up and intertwined with you. Two scriptures to finish. Hebrews 10. 19 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness. Having what? Boldness. To enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. By a new and a living way which He has consecrated for us through the veil that is to say His flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God. Then what's our our response to this? Let us... Draw near. Don't let us sit back. Don't let us be hesitant. Don't let us be without faith. Don't let us be shy. Don't let us be embarrassed. Remember, Abraham wishes he has the opportunity that you have. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Our hearts have been cleansed. That conscience, that blood has dealt with it. It's cleansed. Our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, what's our response? Let us hold fast the profession of our hope without wavering. What's your hope? What's the end of the story? Where are you going? What's going to happen at His appearing? What's God's investment in your life to get you there as His future is intertwined with you? Hold fast the profession of that hope, verse 24, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Exhort one another, and so much the more, as you see, we're getting to the end of the story, as you see the day approaching. Chapter 4, and this is the final scripture, verses 14 to 16. Chapter 4, 14 to 16. It says, Seeing then that we have 
a great high priest that has passed into the heavens. Where is he? Not in any replica, no man-made thing. We have Jesus, this high priest, passed in the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Who is this one that's in the heavens? He is the heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. He's the brightness of his glory. He's the express image of his person. He sustains all things by the word of his power. This one, by himself, purges from our sins. And this one is sitting on the right hand of the majesty in heaven itself. That's who's there on your behalf and my behalf. So let us hold fast this profession. Don't cave in to fear. He's conquered death. Don't cave in to the trials and the emotional pressures of life. Yes, it hurts, but pick yourself up and just keep going. Because this Jesus has paved the way for us. Verse number 15. We don't have a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. That's powerful. He knows you're lonely. Jesus can say, tell me about it. I know all about it. You're hurt and disappointed. He could say, I understand that. Hungry and tired. He knows all about it. He's experienced life with all these temptations so that he knows what resources of heaven you and I need. Out of his own experience, he understands it. He gets those resources and mediates it to us. Hallelujah. He is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He was at all points tempted like you and I, but without sin. So what's the response? Verse 16, Let us therefore come, what's the word? Boldly. Let us come boldly unto that throne of grace. It's not a judgment seat anymore. It's a mercy seat. Let us come to that throne. What kind of a throne is it? A throne of grace. His blood has availed. It's His throne in heaven is mercy, mercy, mercy. Powerful stuff. So let's come boldly to that throne of grace so that we can get the mercy and we can get the grace to help in the time of our need. We can't lose for winning. This is our high priest in his three appearings. His first appearing to abolish sin so that no longer has any power to direct the future of your life. To get us into the presence of God. That's his first appearing. His second appearing is before the very face of God. For you and for me. Because his future is intertwined with us. To receive everything, to grant us everything we need for our lives. And he will, his third appearing, what we call his second coming, is just to bring the absolute fullness of that inheritance to his conclusion as he enters his inheritance with you and me. Hallelujah.